Chapter Seven, Chapter Eight, Chapter Nine. Smith in the City. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.blogsome.com. Today's reading by Kara Schallenberg. Smith in the City by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter Seven. Going into winter quarters. There was. Mr. Rossiter had discovered Smith's and Mike's absence about five minutes after they had left the building. Ever since then, he had been popping out of his lair at intervals of three minutes to see whether they had returned. Constant disappointment in this respect had rendered him decidedly jumpy. When Smith and Mike reached the desk, he was a kind of human soda water bottle. He fizzed over with questions, reproofs, and warnings. What does it mean? What does it mean? he cried. Where have you been? Where have you been? Poetry, said Smith approvingly. You have been absent from your places for over half an hour. Why? 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 Where have you been? Where have you been? I cannot have this. It is preposterous. Where have you been? Suppose Mr. Bickersdyke had happened to come round here. I should not have known what to say to him. Never an easy man to chat with, Comrade Bickersdyke, agreed Smith. You must thoroughly understand that you are expected to remain in your places during business hours. Of course, said Smith, that makes it a little hard for Comrade Jackson to post letters, does it not? Have you been posting letters? We have, said Smith. You have wronged us. Seeing our absent places, you jumped rashly to the conclusion. That we were merely gadding about in pursuit of pleasure. Error. All the while we were furthering the bank's best interests by posting letters. You had no business to leave your place. Jackson is on the posting desk. You are very right, said Smith, and it shall not occur again. It was only because it was the first day. Comrade Jackson is not used to the stir and bustle of the city. His nerve failed him. He shrank from going to the post office alone. So I volunteered to accompany him. And, concluded Smith impressively, we won safely through. Every letter has been posted. That need not have taken you half an hour. True. And the actual work did not. It was carried through swiftly and surely. But the nerve strain had left us shaken. Before resuming our more ordinary duties, we had to refresh. A brief breathing space, a little coffee and porridge, and here we are, fit for work once more. If it occurs again, I shall report the matter to Mr. Bickersdyke. And rightly so, said Smith earnestly. Quite rightly so. Discipline, discipline, that is the cry. There must be no shirking of painful duties. 
Sentiment must play no part in business. Rossiter the man may sympathize, but Rossiter the departmental head must be adamant. Mr. Rossiter pondered over this for a moment, then went off on a side issue. "'What is the meaning of this foolery?' he asked, pointing to Smith's gloves and hat. "'Suppose Mr. Bickersdyke had come round and seen them, what should I have said?' "'You would have given him a message of cheer. "'You would have said, "'All is well. "'Smith has not left us. "'He will come back. "'And Comrade Bickersdyke, relieved, would have... "'You do not seem very busy, Mr. Smith.' "'Both Smith and Mr. Rossiter were startled. "'Mr. Rossiter jumped, "'as if somebody had run a gimlet into him, "'and even Smith started slightly.' they had not heard Mr. Bickersdyke approaching. Mike, who had been stolidly entering addresses in his ledger during the latter part of the conversation, was also taken by surprise. Smith was the first to recover. Mr. Rossiter was still too confused for speech, but Smith took the situation in hand. "'Apparently no,' he said, "'swiftly removing his hat from the ruler. "'In reality, yes. "'Mr. Rossiter and I were just scheming out a line of work for me as you came up. "'If you had arrived a moment later, you would have found me toiling. Hm. I hope I should. "'We do not encourage idling in this bank.' "'Assuredly not,' said Smith warmly. "'Most assuredly not. "'I would not have it otherwise. "'I am a worker. "'A bee, not a drone. "'A Lusitania, not a limpet. "'Perhaps I have not yet that grip on my duties "'which I shall soon acquire. "'But it is coming. "'It is coming. "'I see daylight.' Hm. "'I have only your word for it.' "'He turned to Mr. Rossiter.' who had now recovered himself, and was as nearly calm as it was in his nature to be. "'Do you find Mr. Smith's work satisfactory, Mr. Rossiter?' Smith waited resignedly for an outburst of complaint respecting the small matter that had been under discussion between the head of the department and himself. But to his surprise, it did not come. "'Oh!' "'Ah, quite, quite, Mr. Bickersdyke. "'I think he will very soon pick things up.' "'Mr. Bickersdyke turned away. "'He was a conscientious bank manager, "'and one can only suppose that Mr. Rossiter's tribute "'to the earnestness of one of his employees was gratifying to him. "'But for that, one would have said that he was disappointed. "'Oh, Mr. Bickersdyke!' said Smith. The manager stopped. "'Father sent his kind regards to you,' said Smith benevolently. Mr. Bickersdyke walked off without comment. "'An uncommonly cheery, companionable feller,' murmured Smith, as he turned to his work. The first day anywhere— if one spends it in a sedentary fashion, 
always seemed unending, and Mike felt as if he had been sitting at his desk for weeks when the hour for departure came. A bank's day ends gradually, reluctantly, as it were. At about five there is a sort of stir, not unlike the stir in a theatre, when the curtain is on the point of falling. Ledgers are closed with a bang. Men stand about and talk for a moment or two before going to the basement for their hats and coats. Then, at irregular intervals, forms pass down the central aisle and out through the swing doors. There is an air of relaxation over the place, though some departments are still working as hard as ever under a blaze of electric light. Somebody begins to sing, and an instant chorus of protests and maledictions rises from all sides. Gradually, however, the electric lights go out. The procession down the centre aisle becomes more regular, and eventually the place is left to darkness and the night watchman. The postage department was one of the last to be freed from duty. This was due to the inconsiderateness of the other departments, which omitted to disgorge their letters till the last moment. Mike, as he grew familiar with the work, and began to understand it, used to prowl round the other departments during the afternoon, and wrest letters from them, usually receiving with them much abuse for being a nuisance, and not leaving honest workers alone. Today, however, he had to sit on till nearly six, waiting for the final batch of correspondence. Smith, who had waited patiently with him, though his own work was finished, accompanied him down to the post-office and back again to the bank to return the letter-basket, and they left the office together. "'By the way,' said Smith, "'what with the strenuous labours of the bank and the disturbing interviews with the powers that be, I have omitted to ask you where you are digging.' Wherever it is, of course you must clear out. It is imperative, in this crisis, that we should be together. I have acquired a quite snug little flat in Clement's Inn. There is a spare bedroom. It shall be yours. My dear chap, said Mike, it's all rot. I can't sponge on you. You pain me, comrade Jackson. I was not suggesting such a thing. We are business men. "'Hard-headed young bankers, I make you a business proposition. "'I offer you the post of confidential secretary and adviser to me "'in exchange for a comfortable home. "'The duties will be light. "'You will be required to refuse invitations to dinner from crowned heads "'and to listen attentively to my views on life. "'Apart from this, there is little to do. "'So that's settled.' "'It isn't.' said Mike. I— You will enter upon your duties to-night. Where are you suspended at present? Dulwich? But look here. A little more, and you'll get the sack. I tell you, the thing is settled. Now, let us hail yon taximeter cab, and desire the stern-faced aristocrat on the box to drive us to Dulwich. We will then collect a few of your things in a bag, have the rest off by train, come back in the taxi, 
and go and bite a chop at the Carlton. This is a momentous day in our careers, Comrade Jackson. We must buoy ourselves up. Mike made no further objections. The thought of that bed-sitting-room in Acacia Road and the pantomime dame rose up and killed them. After all, Smith was not like any ordinary person. There would be no question of charity. Smith had invited him to the flat in exactly the same spirit as he had invited him to his house for the cricket week. "'You know,' said Smith, after a silence, as they flitted through the streets in the taximeter, "'one lives and learns. Were you so wrapped up in your work this afternoon that you did not hear my very entertaining little chat with Comrade Bickersdyke, or did it happen to come under your notice?' It did. Then I wonder if you were struck by the singular conduct of Comrade Rossiter. I thought it rather decent of him not to give you away to that blighter Bickersdyke. Admirably put. It was precisely that that struck me. He had his opening, already made for him, but he refrained from depositing me in the soup. I tell you, Comrade Jackson, my rugged old heart was touched. I said to myself, There must be good in Comrade Rossiter after all. I must cultivate him. I shall make it my business to be kind to our departmental head. He deserves the utmost consideration. His action shone like a good deed in a wicked world. Which it was, of course. From today onwards, I take Comrade Rossiter under my wing. We seem to be getting into a tolerably benighted quarter. Are we anywhere near? Through darkest Dulwich, in a taximeter. The cab arrived at Dulwich Station, and Mike stood up to direct the driver. They whirred down Acacia Road. Mike stopped the cab and got out. A brief and somewhat embarrassing interview with the pantomime dame, during which Mike was separated from a week's rent in lieu of notice, and he was in the cab again, bound for Clement's Inn. His feelings that night differed considerably from the frame of mind in which he had gone to bed the night before. It was partly a very excellent dinner, and partly the fact that Smith's flat, though at present in some disorder, was obviously going to be extremely comfortable, that worked the change. But principally it was due to his having found an ally. The gnawing loneliness had gone. He did not look forward to a career of commerce with any greater pleasure than before, but there was no doubt that with Smith it would be easier to get through the time after office hours. If all went well in the bank, he might find that he had not drawn such a bad ticket after all. End of chapter 7 Chapter 8 The Friendly Native The first principle of warfare, said Smith at breakfast next morning, doling out bacon and eggs with the air of a medieval monarch distributing largesse, is to collect a gang to rope in allies, to secure the cooperation of some friendly native. 
you may remember that at Sedley it was partly the sympathetic co-operation of that record blitherer, Comrade Jellicoe, which enabled us to nip the pro-spiller movement in the bud. It is the same in the present crisis. What Comrade Jellicoe was to us at Sedley, Comrade Rossiter must be in the city. We must make an ally of that man. Once I know that he and I are as brothers, and that he will look with a lenient and benevolent eye on any little shortcomings in my work, I shall be able to devote my attention wholeheartedly to the moral reformation of Comrade Bickersdyke, that man of blood. I look on Comrade Bickersdyke as a bargee of the most pronounced type, and anything I can do towards making him a decent member of society shall be done freely and ungrudgingly. A trifle more tea, Comrade Jackson? No thanks, said Mike. I've done. By Jove, Smith, this flat of yours is all right. Not bad, assented Smith, not bad. Free from squalor to a great extent. I have a number of little objects of virtu coming down shortly from the old homestead. Pictures, and so on. It will be by no means unsnug when they are up. Meanwhile I can rough it. We are old campaigners, we smiths. Give us a roof, a few comfortable chairs, a sofa or two, half a dozen cushions, and decent meals, and we do not repine. Reverting once more to Comrade Rossiter. Yes, what about him? said Mike. You'll have a pretty tough job turning him into a friendly native, I should think. How do you mean to start? Smith regarded him with a benevolent eye. There is but one way, he said. Do you remember the case of Comrade Outwood at Sedley? How did we corral him, and become to him practically as long-lost sons? We got round him by joining the Archaeological Society. Precisely, said Smith. Every man has his hobby. The thing is to find it out. In the case of Comrade Rossiter, I should say that it would be either postage stamps, dried seaweed, or hall cane. I shall endeavour to find out to-day. A few casual questions, and the thing is done. Shall we be putting in an appearance at the busy hive now? If we are to continue in the running for the bonus stakes, it would be well to start soon. Mike's first duty at the bank that morning was to check the stamps and petty cash. While he was engaged on this task, he heard Smith conversing affably with Mr. Rossiter. "'Good morning,' said Smith. "'Morning,' replied his chief, doing sleight-of-hand tricks with a bundle of letters which lay on his desk. "'Get on with your work, Smith. We have a lot before us.' Undoubtedly. I am all impatience. I should say that in an institution like this, dealing as it does with distant portions of the globe, a philatelist would have excellent opportunities of increasing his collection. With me, stamp collecting has always been a positive craze. I—I I have no time for nonsense of that sort myself," said Mr. Rossiter. "I should advise you, if you mean to get on." 
to devote more time to your work, and less to stamps. I will start at once. Dried seaweed again. Get on with your work, Smith. Smith retired to his desk. This, he said to Mike, is undoubtedly something in the nature of a setback. I have drawn blank. The papers bring out posters. Smith baffled. I must try again. Meanwhile, to work. Work. The hobby of the philosopher and the poor man's friend. The morning dragged slowly on without incident. At twelve o'clock Mike had to go out and buy stamps, which he subsequently punched in the punching machine in the basement, a not very exhilarating job in which he was assisted by one of the bank messengers, who discoursed learnedly on roses during the séance. Roses were his hobby. Mike began to see that Smith had reason in his assumption that the way to every man's heart was through his hobby. Mike made a firm friend of William, the messenger, by displaying an interest and a certain knowledge of roses. At the same time the conversation had the bad effect of leading to an acute relapse in the matter of homesickness. The rose garden at home had been one of Mike's favorite haunts on a summer afternoon. The contrast between it and the basement of the new Asiatic bank, the atmosphere of which was far from being rose-like, was too much for his feelings. He emerged from the depths with his punched stamps, filled with bitterness against fate. He found Smith still baffled. Hall Kane, said Smith regretfully, has also proved a frost. I wandered round to Comrade Rossiter's desk just now, with a rather brainy excursus on the Eternal City, and was received with the impatient frown, rather than the glad eye. He was in the middle of adding up a rather tricky column of figures, and my remarks caused him to drop a stitch. So far from winning the man over, I have gone back. There now exists between Comrade Rossiter and myself a certain coldness. Further investigations will be postponed till after lunch. The postage department received visitors during the morning. Members of other departments came with letters, among them Bannister. Mr. Rossiter was away in the manager's room at the time. "'How are you getting on?' said Bannister to Mike. "'Oh, all right,' said Mike. "'Had any trouble with Rossiter yet?' "'No, not much.' "'He hasn't run you into Bickersdyke?' "'No.' "'Pardon my interrupting a conversation between old college chums,' said Smith courteously. "'But I happened to overhear, as I toiled at my desk, the name of Comrade Rossiter.' Bannister looked somewhat startled. Mike introduced them. "'This is Smith,' he said. "'Chap I was at school with. This is Bannister, Smith, who used to be on here till I came.' "'In this department?' asked Smith. "'Yes.' "'Then, Comrade Bannister, you are the very man I have been looking for. Your knowledge will be invaluable to us. I have no doubt that, during your stay in this excellently managed department, you had many opportunities of observing Comrade Rossiter.' 
"'I should jolly well think I had,' said Bannister, with a laugh. "'He saw to that. "'He was always popping out and cursing me about something.' "'Comrade Rossiter's manners are a little restive,' agreed Smith. "'What used you to talk to him about?' "'What used I to talk to him about?' "'Exactly. "'In those interviews to which you have alluded, "'how did you amuse, entertain Comrade Rossiter?' "'I didn't. "'He used to do all the talking there was.' "'Smith straightened his tie and clicked his tongue, disappointed. "'This is unfortunate,' he said, smoothing his hair. "'You see, Comrade Bannister, it is this way. "'In the course of my professional duties "'I find myself continually coming into contact with Comrade Rossiter.' "'I bet you do,' said Bannister. "'On these occasions I am frequently at a loss for entertaining conversation. "'He has no difficulty, as apparently happened in your case, "'in keeping up his end of the dialogue.' The subject of my shortcomings provides him with ample material for speech. I, on the other hand, am dumb. I have nothing to say. I should think that was a bit of a change for you, wasn't it? Perhaps so, said Smith. Perhaps so. On the other hand, however restful it may be to myself, it does not enable me to secure Comrade Rossiter's interest and win his esteem. "'What Smith wants to know,' said Mike, "'is whether Rossiter has any hobby of any kind. "'He thinks, if he has, he might work it to keep in with him.' "'Smith, who had been listening with an air of pleased interest, "'much as a father would listen to his child "'prattling for the benefit of a visitor, "'confirmed this statement. "'Comrade Jackson,' he said, "'has put the matter with his usual admirable clearness.' "'That is the thing in a nutshell. "'Has Comrade Rossiter any hobby that you know of? "'Spillikins, brass-rubbing, the Near Eastern Question, or anything like that. "'I have tried him with postage stamps, "'which you'd think, as head of a postage department, "'he ought to be interested in, "'and dried seaweed, hall cane, "'but I have the honour to report total failure. "'The man seems to have no pleasures.' What does he do with himself when the day's toil is ended? That giant brain must occupy itself somehow. I don't know, said Bannister, unless it's football. I saw him once watching Chelsea. I was rather surprised. Football, said Smith, thoughtfully. Football. By no means a scaly idea. "'I rather fancy, Comrade Bannister, that you have whanged the nail on the head. "'Is he strong on any particular team? "'I mean, have you ever heard him, in the intervals of business worries, "'stamping on his desk and yelling, "'Buck up, cottagers!' or "'Lay em out, pensioners!' or anything like that? "'One moment.' "'Smith held up his hand. "'I will get my Sherlock Holmes system to work.' "'What was the other team in the modern gladiatorial contest "'at which you saw Comrade Rossiter?' "'Manchester United.' 
"'And Comrade Rossiter, I should say, was a Manchester man.' "'I believe he is.' "'Then I am prepared to bet a small sum that he is nuts on Manchester United. "'My dear Holmes, how—' "'Elementary, my dear fellow, quite elementary. "'But here comes the lad in person.' Mr. Rossiter turned in from the central aisle through the counter door, and, observing the conversational group at the postage desk, came bounding up. Bannister moved off. "'Really, Smith,' said Mr. Rossiter, "'you always seem to be talking. I have overlooked the matter once, as I did not wish to get you into trouble so soon after joining. But, really, it cannot go on. I must take notice of it. Smith held up his hand. "'The fault was mine,' he said, with manly frankness. "'Entirely mine. Bannister came, in a purely professional spirit, to deposit a letter with Comrade Jackson. I engaged him in conversation on the subject of the football league, and I was just trying to correct his view that Newcastle United were the best team playing, when you arrived.' "'It is perfectly absurd,' said Mr. Rossiter, that you should waste the bank's time in this way. The bank pays you to work, not to talk about professional football. "'Just so, just so,' murmured Smith. "'There is too much talking in this department.' "'I fear you are right.' "'It is nonsense!' "'My own view,' said Smith, was that Manchester United were by far the finest team before the public. "'Get on with your work, Smith!' Mr. Rossiter stumped off to his desk, where he sat as one in thought. "'Smith!' he said at the end of five minutes. Smith slid from his stool and made his way deferentially towards him. "'Bannister's a fool!' snapped Mr. Rossiter. "'So I thought,' said Smith. "'A perfect fool. He always was.' Smith shook his head sorrowfully, as who should say, "'Exit Bannister.' "'There is no team playing today to touch Manchester United.' "'Precisely what I said to Comrade Bannister.' "'Of course, you know something about it.' "'The study of league football,' said Smith, "'has been my relaxation for years. "'But we have no time to discuss it now.' "'Assuredly not, sir. "'Work before everything. "'Some other time, when... "'We are less busy, precisely.' "'Smith moved back to his seat.' "'I fear,' he said to Mike, as he resumed work, "'that as far as Comrade Rossiter's friendship and esteem are concerned, "'I have, to a certain extent, landed Comrade Bannister in the bullion. "'But it was in a good cause. "'I fancy we have won through. "'Half an hour's thoughtful perusal of the footballer's who's who, "'just to find out some elementary facts about Manchester United,' "'and I rather think the friendly native is corralled. "'And now, once more to work. "'Work, the hobby of the hustler, 
and the deadbeat's dread. End of chapter 8 Chapter 9 The Haunting of Mr. Bickersdyke Anything in the nature of a rash and hasty move was wholly foreign to Smith's tactics. He had the patience which is the chief quality of the successful general. He was content to secure his base before making any offensive movement. It was a fortnight before he turned his attention to the education of Mr. Bickersdyke. During that fortnight he conversed attractively, in the intervals of work, on the subject of league football in general, and Manchester United in particular. The subject is not hard to master if one sets oneself earnestly to it, and Smith spared no pains. The football editions of the evening papers are not reticent about those who play the game, and Smith drank in every detail with the thoroughness of the conscientious student. By the end of the fortnight he knew what was the favourite breakfast food of J. Turnbull, what Sandy Turnbull wore next to his skin, and who, in the opinion of Meredith, was England's leading politician. These facts, imparted to and discussed with Mr. Rossiter, made the progress of the Entente Cordiale rapid. It was on the eighth day that Mr. Rossiter consented to lunch with the old Etonian. On the tenth he played the host. By the end of the fortnight the flapping of the white wings of peace over the postage department was setting up a positive draft. Mike, who had been introduced by Smith as a distant relative of Moger, the goalkeeper, was included in the great peace. "'So that now,' said Smith, reflectively polishing his eyeglass, "'I think that we may consider ourselves free to attend to Comrade Bickersdyke. "'Our bright little Mancunian friend would no more run us in now "'than if we were the brothers Turnbull. "'We are as inside forwards to him.' "'The club to which Smith and Mr. Bickersdyke belonged "'was celebrated for the steadfastness of its political views.' the excellence of its cuisine, and the curiously gorgonzola-esque marble of its main staircase. It takes all sorts to make a world. It took about four thousand of all sorts to make the senior conservative club. To be absolutely accurate, there were three thousand seven hundred and eighteen members. To Mr. Bickersdyke, for the next week, it seemed as if there was only one— there was nothing crude or overdone about Smith's methods. The ordinary man, having conceived the idea of haunting a fellow clubman, might have seized the first opportunity of engaging him in conversation. Not so Smith. The first time he met Mr. Bickersdyke in the club was on the stairs after dinner one night. The great man, having received practical proof of the excellence of cuisine referred to above, was coming down the main staircase, at peace with all men, when he was aware of a tall young man, in the faultless evening dress, of which the female novelist is so fond, who was regarding him with a fixed stare through an eyeglass. The tall young man, having caught his eye, smiled faintly, nodded in a friendly but patronizing manner, 
and passed on up the staircase to the library. Mr. Bickersdyke sped on in search of a waiter. As Smith sat in the library with a novel, the waiter entered and approached him. "'Beg pardon, sir,' he said. "'Are you a member of this club?' Smith fumbled in his pocket and produced his eyeglass, through which he examined the waiter, button by button. "'I am Smith,' he said simply. "'A member, sir?' "'The member,' said Smith. "'Surely you participated in the general rejoicings which ensued "'when it was announced that I had been elected. "'But perhaps you were too busy working to pay any attention. "'If so, I respect you. "'I also am a worker, a toiler, not a flatfish, "'a sizzler, not a squab. "'Yes, I am a member. "'Will you tell Mr. Bickersdyke that I am sorry, "'but I have been elected?' and have paid my entrance fee and subscription. Thank you, sir. The waiter went downstairs, and found Mr. Bickersdyke in the lower smoking-room. The gentleman says he is, sir. Hm, said the bank manager. Coffee and Benedictine and a cigar. Yes, sir. On the following day Mr. Bickersdyke met Smith in the club three times, and on the day after that seven. Each time the latter's smile was friendly, but patronizing. Mr. Bickersdyke began to grow restless. On the fourth day Smith made his first remark. The manager was reading the evening paper in a corner, when Smith, sinking gracefully into a chair beside him, caused him to look up. "'The rain keeps off,' said Smith. Mr. Bickersdyke looked as if he wished his employee would imitate the rain, but he made no reply. Smith called a waiter. "'Would you mind bringing me a small cup of coffee?' he said. "'And for you?' he added to Mr. Bickersdyke. "'Nothing,' growled the manager." and nothing for Mr. Bickersdyke. The waiter retired. Mr. Bickersdyke became absorbed in his paper. "'I see from my morning paper,' said Smith, affably, "'that you are to address a meeting at the Kenningford Town Hall next week. I shall come and hear you. Our politics differ in some respects, I fear. I incline to the socialist view.' "'But nevertheless I shall listen to your remarks with great interest, great interest.' The paper rustled, but no reply came from behind it. "'I heard from father this morning,' resumed Smith. Mr. Bickersdyke lowered his paper and glared at him. "'I don't wish to hear about your father,' he snapped. An expression of surprise and pain came over Smith's face. "'What?' he cried. "'You don't mean to say that there is any coolness between my father and you. I am more grieved than I can say. Knowing, as I do, what a genuine respect my father has for your great talents, I can only think that there must have been some misunderstanding. Perhaps if you would allow me to act as a mediator.' 
Mr. Bickersdyke put down his paper and walked out of the room. Smith found him a quarter of an hour later in the card room. He sat down beside his table and began to observe the play with silent interest. Mr. Bickersdyke, never a great performer at the best of times, was so unsettled by the scrutiny that in the deciding game of the rubber he revoked, thereby presenting his opponents with the rubber by a very handsome majority of points. Smith clicked his tongue sympathetically. Dignified reticence is not a leading characteristic of the bridge player's manner at the senior conservative club on occasions like this. Mr. Bickersdyke's partner did not bear his calamity with manly resignation. He gave tongue on the instant. "'What on earth's?' and "'Why on earth's?' flowed from his mouth like molten lava. Mr. Bickersdyke sat and fermented in silence. Smith clicked his tongue sympathetically throughout. Mr. Bickersdyke lost that control over himself which every member of a club should possess. He turned on Smith with a snort of frenzy. "'How can I keep my attention fixed on the game when you sit staring at me like a—like a—' "'I am sorry,' said Smith gravely. "'If my stare falls short in any way of your ideal of what a stare should be. But I appeal to these gentlemen.' "'Could I have watched the game more quietly?' "'Of course not,' said the bereaved partner warmly. "'Nobody could have any earthly objection to your behaviour. "'It was absolute carelessness. "'I should have thought that one might have expected one's partner at a club like this "'to exercise elementary—' "'But Mr. Bickersdyke had gone. "'He had melted silently away, like the driven snow.' Smith took his place at the table. "'A somewhat nervous, excitable man, Mr. Bickersdyke, I should say,' he observed. "'A somewhat dashed, blanked idiot,' emended the bank manager's late partner. "'Thank goodness he lost as much as I did. That's some light consolation.' Smith arrived at the flat to find Mike still out. Mike had repaired to the gaiety earlier in the evening to refresh his mind after the labours of the day. When he returned, Smith was sitting in an armchair with his feet on the mantelpiece, musing placidly on life. "'Well,' said Mike. "'Well, and how was the gaiety? Good show?' "'Jolly good. What about Bickersdyke?' Smith looked sad. "'I cannot make Comrade Bickersdyke out,' he said. "'You would think that a man would be glad to see the son of a personal friend. On the contrary, I may be wronging Comrade B., but I should almost be inclined to say that my presence in the senior conservative club to-night irritated him. There was no bonhomie in his manner.' He seemed to me to be giving a spirited imitation of a man about to foam at the mouth. I did my best to entertain him. I chatted. His only reply was to leave the room. I followed him to the card-room, and watched his very remarkable and brainy tactics at bridge, and he accused me of causing him to revoke. A very curious personality, 
that of Comrade Bickersdyke. "'But let us dismiss him from our minds. "'Rumours have reached me,' said Smith, "'that a very decent little supper may be obtained "'at a quaint, old-world eating-house called the Savoy. "'Will you accompany me thither on a tissue-restoring expedition? "'It would be rash not to probe these rumours to their foundation "'and ascertain their exact truth.'" End of chapter 9